Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. Mary had a little lamb, row, 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 row. Manson was also almost certainly had some affiliation with the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which was also kind of a Scientology offshoot and Red Crowley. And then the Process Church of the Final Judgment is involved in all kinds of nefarious activities, not just Manson, but also the Sons of Sam. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. Welcome, listeners, to another episode. Today, I'm going to begin the episode by drawing in a distinction. One that was used all the way back in the medieval period that they used to make a distinction in every form of science. They divided their science into three things. The material object, the formal object, and the method. The material object is the thing you are studying. So in the case of chemistry, for example, You are studying the properties, composition, and behavior of matter, and the interaction between them and that kind of thing. In biology, you are studying living organisms and the interactions with the environment and that type of thing, such as genetics or ecology. The formal object is the perspective that you take on it. So human beings can be studied from a biological point of view or from a chemical point of view or they can be studied from a theological or a philosophical point of view. So you can have the same material object, in this case a human, but looked at from different points of view, from a biological, from a chemical, from a theological, philosophical view. And then that perspective that you take on it determines what is called the method. Because obviously the method which is used in biology is going to be different from the method used in chemistry. It's different in the method of philosophy or theology. And so there's the method it is determined or based upon the particular view you take in a relationship to the thing you are studying. And so there is the method, and it is determined or based upon the particular viewpoint you take in relationship to the thing you are studying. Now, the result of all this is that the sciences, plural sciences, are not just quote-unquote the empirical science. A science is defined as an organized body of knowledge of things through their causes. In other words, I have a scientific knowledge about something because I know what causes it, what brings it into being, what affects it, and that type of thing. In the context of our episode today, and that what we are going to talk about is important to psychology, and it is the study of the human in mind and behavior. 
Humans can actively do things in their mind that do not require their body to act in a behavioral manner. The human can use its mind to think about its thoughts. It does not need to behave in a manner that reflects those thoughts either. Humans are more than a mere base animal. In this way, when one learns about psychology, it is important to remember that the human consists of more than what they do, their behavior, but also what is in their mind. What do they think about? How do they process thoughts? How does their cognition work? We learn that humans have a thing called dignity, and that is given to them by God, their creator, and that dignity is not part of their behavior alone or of their mind alone, but because it is a result of what they are as imagers of God. And to unpack that, it means that the human, in their behavior and in their mind, is supposed to reflect the actions and the activity and the thoughtfulness of their Creator. Therefore, as we talk about psychology in this episode, we're going to be talking about two different forms. We're talking about the sociopath and the psychopath. And we're going to invest time to looking at these, not merely as behavioral traits alone, but also as part of the individual's mind space. With your mind comes some level of intelligence, and all intelligences can be influenced directly or indirectly by another intelligence. We are looking at these ideas of a sociopath or a psychopath theologically and philosophically. We therefore agree with the conclusion that other fields of science say of this. We agree with when the psychologists talk about the psychopath or the sociopath. But we investigate further and look at the other identifiers in this manner that could be a result of something within this theological framework. That the mind can be influenced by another being of pure intellect. I speak of the spirit. We have spoken about beings of pure intellect and how they are commonly called spirits by Christian theologians. And we shall maintain this identifier. A spirit being is a pure intellect. It can use its power of intellect and can focus its attention, if you will, upon a target of its interest. For example, the angel Gabriel did not have to ask directions on how to get to Mary's bedchamber. It could think it and would be there. The angel did not have to ask directions on how to get to the Holy Holies where John's father Zechariah was. It could think it and be there. The intellect of pure spirit is not constrained by time, space, or matter. Therefore, it is entirely possible for the sociopath or the psychopath to have their mind space invaded by a malicious entity that has nothing but malevolent intent. While a spirit that is bringing a message from God would clearly establish its own barriers and not violate the will of the Father, which would also include human free will, the sinister forces do not work with such a duty to uphold a human free will and therefore will, when able, bring to bear its own intellect and influence a human's mind. Therefore, what we understand of sociopaths is that the cause of this antisocial personality disorder is relatively unknown. Genetic factors and environmental factors such as child abuse are believed to contribute to the development, and people with an antisocial or alcoholic parent are at increased risk, and the studies show, show that men are more likely to be sociopaths than women. 
what we know about the psychopath is that there are many childhood risk factors for contributing to this mental disorder, including poverty, housing instability, parental conflict, divorce, negative peer influences, lack of parental involvement, exposure to crime or violence, and legal or criminal problems within the family. These are summarized and minimized definitions of both terms because a deeper examination would take far longer than a forethought would allow. However, something of interest to me is the religious practice of a shaman and how this ties in. There are many traditions and therefore I do not intend to limit or minimize the effects or the reality of this particular practice within their cultural context. However, looking at it philosophically or theologically, from what I have found that there are some who would say the process of becoming a shaman puts them at odds with their own society and culture. They often live on the outskirts of their own villages. People have to come to them. They don't go to people. There are traditions that some who go to become a shaman, they're on the shaman quest, and if they fail the trial, they might become something called a shape changer. And in that particular tradition, they can possess others, can disguise themselves, and they are often extremely wicked and evil. The process changes who they are into something not quite right with the world. Is it therefore merely an act upon the individual that has changed them thus? Or could there have been unseen forces that have pushed them over the boundary into chaos? Perhaps these untapped shamans have shape changed into what they are because the healthy mode of dealing with the disorder and dystopia of the world actually causes them to go over the top. In any case, the mind is a labyrinth of possibilities and the body is an expression of many of them. Understanding that some fall prey to the intellect of the sinister forces as a real possibility as the sane returning from their vision quest, the end is the same. How will we handle the paradox of the unseen and what we can experience? Shall we look into the abyss and shrink once it looks back? Or shall we take the fight to the enemy and claim our crown of victory? The fact that we know that there is something spooky in the world and most pastors and priests pass over the reality of the supernatural battle that impacts your very soul, expecting you to maintain a simple life yet know how unaware you are of the sinister forces, the thread of evil that has woven itself in and out of every major power since the dawn of the fall of man cannot merely be traced, but is well documented in the lives of the depraved. This is where my guest comes in. He's an attorney, an author, and a researcher delving into the realms of devil worship, bringing light to the shadows cast by Luciferianism, mucking around the filth of the death cults, and unveiling the hidden layers of history that have shaped our world, may I introduce William Ramsey, author of Prophet of Evil, Children of the Beast, to name a couple of his books. Join us as we explore the depths of truth and darkness. William Ramsey, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for the invite. Great to be here. Great to be with you. We've talked about angels, we've talked about some demons, we've talked about some of the named powers on either side of the, the veiled side for a little bit. But the thing is, is, 
those entities on the other side of the veil, they like to bleed into our realm. Right. And they like to influence people. And one of the individuals in Children of the Beast that you go through is John Lawson, who changed his name to Pazuzu. Yeah, I came across this story as I was writing Children of the Beast back in 2014. It was of this guy who was pretty much a modern kind of uh, demon worshiper or demonologist. So I found him to be very unique. There was a kind of a trace of his social media around. And so I thought it was important to kind of memorialize it. And he was from... um, I think it was North or South Carolina, if I remember correctly, but he, he looked like there's pictures of him as like a normal kind of looks like a little skate kid who transformed himself into this devil worshiping ritual, magic, blood drinking, um, really kind of a monster who filed his teeth down like what Crowley, Alistair Crowley supposedly did as well. But, uh, the, the sad truth is that he had victims. We know that he had two bodies were buried in his back yard believed to have been killed in 20, 2009 and so uh, yeah he was a very dark character Pazuzu for people who may not remember or recall is the demon that is featured in the book the I mean the film The Exorcist talking about these things that traverse time in not just people but also in symbols or icons if you will and how they can become manifest and John Lawson becoming Pazuzu. There was a real interesting story about how he came to an end. Did you cover that? Well, he was arrested and in jail, and he supposedly bit himself and bled to death. Yeah. Right. Yeah, bruises and broken ribs and things like that in his padded cell kind of thing. So he was, uh, yeah, very dark character. Face tattoos, menacing, rituals at night, eating rabbits. Like, he was on a, a roll... Um, that was something else. And one of the reasons it draw my attention is like my book was about Aleister Crowley. So he had a kind of an infamous picture of Crowley up on his wall, as well as kind of other things that I didn't realize at the time. He was interested in Arabic, right? which would and could possibly tie him to the Order of Nine Angles, which kind of had a strange overlap. Yeah, but I didn't notice that in 2014. I wasn't aware of that. So maybe it's probably worth my while to go back and revisit his records. I know there was a really good documentary that came out about him. Uh, mm-hmm. A four-part documentary that yeah. may have exposed some stuff, but yeah, he uh, he was sophisticated. Yeah, because when we explore this, the sinister forces, we also identify that there is an intellect so we can look at it psychologically. We can analyze these behaviors, and so we can analyze the behaviors that these guys do, and we would typically call them sociopaths or psychopaths, that people who basically fall off the deep end and then they manifest and then they act on their manifestations. Right, and it's interesting you make those terms, the psychopaths, sociopaths, because these people are almost, they're outside of the standard psychological definitions, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I think that those terms apply, do apply, but they don't, address the totality of their character because oftentimes they're thinking like you said they're intelligent and so the the courts actually kind of would call them those terms and actually call them insane but it's almost like they're not that crazy it's it there's something else going on there's a spiritual dimension yeah something yeah there is an author who had addressed that the issue uh, there's this uh, parallelism between shamanism and the idea of the 
rituals associated usually with indigenous peoples groups and their shamanist practices and the idea of a sociopath basically these people going out and they're deprived and depraved kind of people and they they lead to something and they usually come back you know the shaman's going to come back and he's going to work for good but the shaman who doesn't come back is turned into like a skinwalker according to some native american myths and that would seem to correlate with the you know they're sociopathic there's a you know they they act out they hurt people they kill people they do things to animals cannibalism in a ritualistic manner not a simple this is part of my culture this is not normal behavior and if we're talking about shamans we can also talk about someone like Aleister Crowley who clearly went through some kind of initiation process and he called himself the beast but that comes from his past doesn't it yeah, he kind of absorbed a lot of things from the Book of Revelation, so he adapted that into his kind of worldview and outlook, yeah. So I think that that was kind of his take. But I think that there's probably similarities between Crowley, Lawson, a.k.a. Pazuzu, and kind of shamanism. There's something strange about them kind of doing these rituals to gain power or communicate with the other side. Like, that was Crowley's kind of goal his whole life from his early 20s to the end was like, communicating communicating with entities and things like that my listeners know that i have kind of a dark occult background myself and called the entities that i was faced with basically these uh shadows on the threshold demons of the crossroads those kinds of things and i didn't have as much internet access back in the late 90s early thousands and stuff i mean uh, for internet research not not a whole lot of stuff going on so i had to do it the hard way and walk around and talk to people but i was looking into alistair crowley and then i've started thinking about it since that time since i was converted to christianity and started really looking at these guys and it makes me wonder with john lawson if he he didn't hear from some kind of being some kind of sinister force. And I draw that because I look at Aleister Crowley's life and there's a couple of entities that he speaks to and one of them's Lamb and the other was um, Awas. Among others, among many others. Yeah. Hey, as we shift gears yeah. to discuss how others are impacted by these sinister forces, I wanted to take a moment to ask the listeners for their continued support. Right. Liking, sharing, and subscribing not only helps us spread awareness, but also gives a voice to those affected. Now let us dive into the impact the Sinister Forces had on others. Did you talk about Jack Parsons in your book? In, my, in Children of the Beast, yes I did, in detail. Okay, I have fantastic. a whole chapter about him. Now I don't know as much about Jack Parsons as I think you might have talked about in your book. Could you talk to my listeners about him for a bit? Well, Crowley considered Parsons to be his number one disciple, and Parsons was not even close to Crowley. He grew up in Pasadena. He was kind of lived in a very nice, uh, I would call it upper class at that time. He might not have uh, recognized it as such, but he was uh, a talented, curious young guy who was into the occult, but also into rocketry of all things so he was one of these founding members of what became jpl or jet propulsion labs some people had a little play on words they called it jack parsons labs yeah but uh he uh his, his real name was marvel whiteside parsons actually and so he's born in 1914 and died after crowley crowley died in 47 and parsons died under somewhat mysterious circumstances uh after a Something exploded. He was always toying around with explosives and rocketry. And um, his group, they actually called themselves or were referred to 
as the suicide squad because they're always uh, you know getting close to blowing themselves up the he said he met satan when he was 13 so his kind of occult you know his occult interest started very early and so then he kind of started the agape lodge which was and inside the agape lodge there's there's a show i forgot what the name of it is but it was produced uh, recently about his this whole story but inside the agape lodge was a huge picture of crowley and he was in contact with crowley and writing to crowley and uh, there's actually a picture of him doing ritual magic in my book uh, close to hollywood kind of like in um, east of downtown hollywood and it has the classic standard gnostic mass that crowley designed but um, he made the oath of the the antichrist he was anti-christian like crowley Knew Al Ron Hubbard, so he's with Hubbard. Exactly. So they had kind of like the fr- a friendship as well as an a, uh, animosity after Hubbard ran off with his then um, wife, uh, Parsons' wife. Marjorie something. Marjorie Cam- uh, no, Marjorie Cameron became his scarlet woman. That's right. But there was another woman whose name escapes me right now. But they kind of shared, they had a romantic, each of them had a romantic relationship with her. To do the Babylon working. Right. So that was kind of the famous, the famous uh, story, the Babylon working where he went out. And these workings is much like Crowley. They take place over time. So this one took place over the, like, uh, I think it was 1946 between the fourth, 4th and the 15th of January. And they mm-hmm. would drive out to the de- desert and do these things. And their whole goal was kind of to facilitate this kind of change in, in energy, kind of like to facilitate Crowley's new Aeon, actually. So they had this... Right. And then Crowley them to not do it, if I remember correctly. Right, he said, what is, what, is up, what is up with these louts and something like that? So he was kind of dismissive of them. Yeah, so they were, t- you know... Uh, yeah, it was 46. So they would do this, they would travel out into the Mojave, and actually Crowley's... I mean, and then Hubbard kind of ran off with uh, Parsons' money and his girlfriend... And then started Dianetics in 48 and Scientology in 50. So it all kind of came pretty closely after each other. Yeah, that's that, what I call the new, new occult revival, which really seems to kick off actually at the death of Crowley in December of 47. Right. Because we've got Kenneth Hanger and L. Ron Hubbard, you know, uh, Gerard Gardner's really kicking off at this time. Right, Gerald Gardner, yeah. Leading up into the 60s. Yeah, and then McMurtry, who knew Crowley face-to-face, was associated with Parsons. So there's actually a tie between, like a physical tie. And McMurtry would go on to kind of be the head of the caliph and ended up in Berkeley with the kind of Crowleyan lodge. Mm. And was, I mean, there's parts in my book where McMurtry is hanging out with Jacques Vallée. People know that name from UFO. Yep. And also Robert Anton Wilson. So there's these strange overlaps of these kind of literary, literate figures and Crowley and this kind of pushing of this magical current or whatever to the to the, really the present day, and uh, believe it or not. That current really, see, you're in Los Angeles, right? Right. So not too far away from you guys is Hollywood and then uh, that Laurel Canyon area, isn't it? Right, yeah. yeah. Charles Manson, he begins to kick off his deal, they really grab a hold of Helter Skelter, which was a the White Album from the Beatles song. And it begins the Tate murders, etc. 
Right. So that's what, 69. So there's a lot of strange stuff. And there's all kinds of rumors about um, uh, Manson being associated with a Crowley offshoot called the Solar Temple, which was, there was a lodge outside of USC. So they were saying Manson was aware, familiar with that. And Manson was also almost certainly had some affiliation with the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which was also kind of a Scientology offshoot and Red Crowley. So it's, and then the Process Church of the Final Judgment is involved in all kinds of nefarious activities, not just Manson, but also the Sons of Sam and things like that. Right. Yeah, so it's clear that there's definitely, I mean, it, it's either the same thread or we're talking about a fabric that is being woven by multiple yes. threads into a tapestry Agreed. of darkness. Agreed. And then one of the Crowley's, one of the, another guy we mentioned is Kenneth Anger, who also sat with, not uh, his name was Bobby Bouzelet, who was an associate of Manson, who really took orders from Manson to kill Hinman and ended up in jail. But he was living with Anger and saw Anger was a full-on warlock. And, uh, yeah, so these guys are all into kind of the occult, but their cultural impact in the United States uh, can't be underestimated. It's just it's still people are still talking about it in true crime and cultural circles to this day. Yeah, and that's, and that's modern times, and that's because we have the access, the literary access, and everybody can read or listen to stuff on their own and have access to these things. But there's plenty of evidence that shows that this goes back in time. You know, ancient Sumeria, we've got stuff kicking off in there, changing the way people think, and it goes all the way through time, it's clearly something. No doubt. No, it's something in, the, something in the human condition. It's part of the human condition. It is definitely part of the human condition. You, you interview some of these really great people who have been in it. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to the two occult rejects. One guy was a member of uh, the OTO, so he, he knew kind of about what was going on with Crowley and all that stuff. And these guys think that magic works. They're not kind of naive about it. They kind of are believers in this ceremonial magic stuff. And then the other one, I think, was a member of the Golden Dawn, of which Crowley was a member going back to England at the turn of the 19th century. Um, so that kind of group is kind of... At the first occult revival. Yeah, right, exactly. So that was like the... The time of uh, Blavatsky and kind of Eastern mysticism was making its way into the West in a way that it had never done in the past. And Crowley was part of that, too. But um, um, so, yeah, so these guys, you know, they talk about their stories, the initiations and the rituals and what they think about a lot of the Kabbalah. They know a lot about the Kabbalah and use the Kabbalah much like Crowley did. So those are some some people I've talked to a guy who was associated with Genesis P. Orge kind of a transhumanist uh, pandragine even before what's happening today. Um, so that, that's, uh, his name was, I uh, can't remember right now, but that, that was kind of one of the post-World War II occult movements was this group, uh, Temple of Psychic Youth. So, you know, it's these guys have first-person insights kind of into the modern occult, occult, you know, current, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's exactly what it would be. That's what I call it. It's definitely a current. It flows, weaves its way through everything. There was an incident, the Black Dahlia murder. Did you write about that in any of your books? I have not written about it, but I'm familiar with it because it happened in L.A., but uh, that's also like another occult, 
crime that uh, clearly had some kind of Hollywood and um, like a cult element to it. There's just no question about it. I think that was 47 too, right? She was 40. It was 1947, which is a really kind of a huge year. Yeah. We've got uh, UFOs popping off in Washington State, at New Mexico, Roswell happening, all these weird things that, you know, some people probably dies. Crawley, Crawley dies in the December and the CIA kicks off. The NSA, yeah, the National Security Act, which is CIA, yeah. And then MKUltra really starts getting its start. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Like, it's like a really post war kind of. Uh, lever fulcrum year you know where everything changed into something new well let's see Crowley theosophy ariosophy uh that's guido von list he the nazis sabatendorf which was kind of an amusing character he tries to have a wizard duel he's like harry potter versus voldemort you know with alistair crowley wants to surrender for germany yeah no sabatendorf is interesting there's all kinds of occultists around the Nazis and the German right. It's incredible. Another one is yours. If this guy, if you know, you can look him up. He was a writer and author. And is the tie between Hitler and Curly. You can say Avers, E-V-E-R-S, right? So he was in the States at the time Curly was. So he's friends with Curly and some of the people in Curly's circle. And then goes back to Germany and becomes part of the Nazi party and literally had an office. Yeah, I think it was, uh, oh, what's the propaganda minister? It's uh, Goebbels uh, gives him an office of like literature or something in the Nazi party. So pretty remarkable that they actually use some kind of tie between the Nazis and Crowley. And then if we move to something that's a little bit more modern, there's the satanic group they call themselves the order of nine angles you make mention of what kind of information or ideas can we draw out of this a lot i mean it's pretty remarkable it's kind of a newer kind of a movement that referenced all of these other occult groups right and i show that in my book like they're the guy who kind of formulated the original scripts back in the 70s and 80s his name was david myatt and he kind of wanted to Distinguished kind of an occult group from these other occult groups that were out there, such as the Temple of Set or the Church of Satan. And really what he said distinguishes is that our ability to kill, right? They were murderers. And so there's actually writings between him and the Temple of Set and um, Michael Aquino individually. So they know of each other. And they also know of kind of other chaos magicians as well. Their corpus is fairly new, and it really took off during the internet. So it's it's become a global phenomenon, which I reference in my book, Global Death Cult. It has a completely different kind of basis. It grew out of the occult right-wing political groups in the UK. So it has this kind of overlap with occultism of Nazis. So it's kind of like a satanic, uh, well, I guess it's kind of redundant, because the Nazis were an occult satanic. <laughs> yes, they were, right. Uh, political party. So I think that it's just a kind of a carry on and kind of a more modern sensibilities with new, a new corpus of writing really, but really their basis is finding an offer or a sacrifice and going, going up their scale is to kind of kill somebody and get away with it. Yeah. They're basically the modern day assassins kind of people, the Ashashin where they, they would go and they, or the thugs. Exactly. They'd go out and they'd kill. And if they got caught, that's fine because that's all part of their religion. Right. 
Yeah, so that's and uh, the the one thing that's important for everybody to understand is cultists who are serious about it, they have just as much faith in their beliefs as any Christian, Muslim, Buddhist may have. And that's the hard thing to understand is because we're not just dealing with someone who's like, oh, this is all woo-woo. We're dealing with people who have faith in it. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who have faith in the unseen. I mean, they have a spiritual worldview. So like a lot of people, oh, what's your, are you religious? What's your spiritual? And some people may mistakenly believe that context is like you're religiously Christian or, or Orthodox Jewish or something. But some of these people are spiritual and faithful to some of the darkest ideas. Going back to Pazuzu is a perfect example because the dark gods of the Order of Nine Anglo Pantheon go back to Sumeria. And I don't think Pazuzu is involved, but there's all these other strange entities that are very similar to kind of the work of uh, Lovecraft, yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing is Pazuzu wasn't necessarily a demon of blood sacrifice. In fact, there's no Sumerian evidence that it was a blood sacrifice entity. It was more used to scare Lamash to its wife to stay away from other people's babies in that way. It was kind of a protector gargoyle, if you will, to the Sumerians. And it was drawn forward into the the Exorcist, because the Ashurbanipal Pol Library and stuff like that was recently discovered and was really getting its promulgation through upper echelon education and stuff. Interesting. There's other people that deal with or desire some kind of occult power, even if they don't think it's a cult, making themselves better musically. Right. Robert Johnson, he was a blues player who really couldn't play the guitar all that well, and he went out to a crossroads and called forth, you know, he's a Cajun kind of guy. And so he calls whatever voodoo God out and he basically comes back into town and he can play the guitar like no one they've known before. And it's clearly some kind of, they called it at the time, supernatural. Yeah. Those crossroads are still, there's a, there's a famous kind of crossroads with the statuary there where this, he supposedly had happened south of Memphis, you know? Yeah. In the South. There's definitely musicians that get something, or, or they're CIA plants, right? Something, something strange. <laughs> Which, I mean, the CIA is so spooky and like Hogwarts that it's almost like an occult group anyway. It has kind of a a very sterile kind of modern scientistical sensibility to all the writing mm-hmm. and things like that, but its its underbelly is a cult all the way. I mean, they're trying to... MK Ultra is a perfect example. It's like mind control, and a lot of occultism has that aspect to it, and I've seen it uh, permeate through all these things, which is the ability to control other people's minds, not just their own. Yeah. Yeah, the, the men who stare at goats, right? That's the reference I give for people to understand MK Ultra. Right. And it's more than that. I mean, it was a very vast project. A lot of people don't comprehend. They kind of laugh. Some people like who haven't read into it, they like kind of laugh it off. Ah, no, these guys had 149 sub projects filtered through. I mean, spread out throughout the entire United States with very smart, top of the line psychiatrists and psychologists with unlimited funds doing all kinds of strange tests and everything. Hypnotism, drugs, the whole bit. What I say is, I think there's groups out there that understand how to hack the human brain. Like it's a, I mean, it's not a computer, but it's basically a computer. And they've been around for millennia, and they know exactly what button to push. 
They know how to control alt delete. They know all of those things. And that's who you're up against when you start looking at someone like Tom DeLong or uh, the guy who wrote the Simon Necronomicon, Peter Lavenda. Yeah, he knows a lot. We're starting to look at these people through this lens that these are guys that have been exposed to sinister forces. Very well said, just like L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, the whole Scientology is one mind control cult. Like, it's very well integrated. And, I mean, his own son said it was like a cultism drawn out over time. But they have a lot of that MK Ultra kind of ideology bleeds into this, into that group. Like, suggestion and hypnosis and social attachment. I mean, just all kinds of themes about my... uh, Social control are in Scientology, which is why a lot of those guys have a hard time getting out. And when they get out, they're still messed up. Or or they're jumping on Oprah Winfrey's couch, screaming how much they love somebody. You actually can't really get out. You have to, if you, they have a file on every one of their members and all their everything. You know, naughty stuff. and All their dark everything. It's basically blackmail. Yeah, no, it's blackmail. And you've also done research on serial murderers because we did talk about sociopath earlier with Lawson, but you've done the West Memphis three. Correct. Yeah. I wrote a book about them in 2012. Right. And you've been working on a new book about the smiley face killers. Correct. I just published it. It's a 400 page book. It's really kind of like the finishing of seven years of research really goes back to 2016. When I first started getting it, got interested and I've done two documentaries and then I figured there were so many things that happened in the last year and a half that it were mandated or I felt like I should put it all into book form, all that research and kind of the unraveling of the understanding of this new phenomenon of young men uh, out at night getting separated from friends who are then are later disappeared, later be found in water. There, nobody sees them go into the water, but they are found dead in water. And uh, the numbers in the world, I think my case is, in the book, it's like 350 or 360 cases. But I think I actually have another 100 cases that I could put back in that book. So it is a significant uh, number of deaths. I don't think it's just one person doing it. I think it's a group and it might be coordinated. And they have their own kind of ideology and uh, symbolism. And Smiley Face is one of their symbols. All right, fantastic. Is there some stuff you can give my audience on where to find you some of your some hints about your documentaries, things like talk about what you want. Yeah, actually you can watch, yeah, you can watch all five of my documentaries on Patreon for $5. I think it's a pretty good deal. So you can have hours of live. I've done two documentaries on the smiley face killers. I've covered the subjects in my book. I've done Nicole Hollywood. You can see the smiley faces on that. Um, and I've done a treatment on uh, fight club, which I'm in mean, the book itself has all kinds of, smiley face references and Tyler Durden's a fifth five and a six right so it's uh 11 magic so Palniak knows all that stuff but uh, I've, I've got a children of the beast documentary that's three hours long one on profit of evil so you can see that on patreon I got a ton of information just on my website and some of my old writing some articles that aren't even in my books which is William Ramsey investigates. You can buy my books there. And then my podcast is in the top 0.5% podcast in the world. And I have like on my way to 1100 episodes on all kinds of stuff. I've done a lot of true crime. I've done a lot of film analysis, cultural analysis, um, some Christian stuff that I've done just on, you know, there's a little something for everyone. There is. 
And some people find stuff. I do a lot of, I did a recent one on Adelson, this Adelson family, where the family members have been arrested for the killing of one of the members' ex-husbands that happened mm-hmm. in Florida. So, you know, just a little bit of just trying to keep my finger on the pulse of a lot of different things going on in the world. There's a lot of material out there. There's no question. There's a lot going on. Yeah, was that... No, I was thinking of the Sodder children disappearance. That was different. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. I've done one on the, the family, right? This kind of weird pedophile group that went around Florida. Yeah. That comes to mind, which CIA ties and occult ties. So you got anything in the pipeline? Uh, I've got two projects I'm trying to finish by the end of the year, and I'm doing a really good job procrastinating on them, but I'm trying to get them done. And I'm starting my own publishing company, so I'm looking for people. If you have any submissions, send them to williamramseyinvestigates at gmail.com. Are you doing Amazon as your publications, or...? I'm going to try to get it out to as many kind of retail uh, outlets of any books uh, that I can, so... I'll publish on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, whatever, and self, self-publish. I mean, it's much easier these days for even a smaller publisher, a smaller book author, to get your book kind of into um, the you know highway or the internet super highway yeah. through Amazon into the hands of anybody who's got a Kindle, really, or want to print yeah, it out. Yeah, Fantastic, William. I appreciate your time, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You as well. Thanks for uh, having me on. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening. This is a free podcast based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, subscribing to this channel, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend on your social media accounts. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light in the darkness.